Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open up your Bibles? <clears throat> We're going to read this week first, 2 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 9. As we go into the account of Lot and the attempted rape of the angels by the men of Sodom, I would like us to set as the background 2 Peter 2, 4-9 and what it says about Lot, which we must keep in mind as we study the Old Testament account. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-9. through 9. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Now, how many times was Lot referred to there as righteous? Once? How many? Huh? Three times. Three times. The Holy Spirit speaks of the righteousness of Lot. Keep that in mind now as we read the account of Lot found in Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. Or the whole chapter, 1 to 38. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now... The two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway And shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please, 
Let me bring them out to you, and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of the place. For we, about to, we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. You will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, This town is near enough to flee to, and it's small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Thereafter, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth, When Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father." 
So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughter of Lot, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Their firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we start with me reminding you what we were told in Second Peter, which is three times repeated that Lot was righteous. And this is where we'll end, but I'll say it now. What that means is that you are righteous. Because the truth is, None of us have any right to look down on Lot. None of us. None of us can claim to be superior to Lot. None of us can claim that we are not capable of the same wickedness as Lot. And the truth is that every one of our righteous deeds is corrupted with sin. And so I just want to rejigger everybody as we come to this text this morning. Stop with this incessant judgment of people that don't live in your time. Stop with your cheap, superficial judgments of others. I'll come back to this, but let's start recognizing that when the Bible says, through the words of the Apostle Peter, that Lot was righteous. First of all, obviously, it's not approving of the things that are done here, many of them. But the second thing is, remember, that Lot, by God's mercy, was righteous. And God is telling you that for a purpose. All right. Now let's look at the account. Right at the very beginning, we see there are no longer three men. There are now two. And no longer does it refer to Yahweh, to Lord, uppercase, all caps, Lord, which is the indication of the name Yahweh for God. So God, the Lord, has left, departed, and now there are left two angels. These are two of the three who met with Abraham. And notice that they're sent for two reasons to Sodom. One reason is to show God's mercy to Lot and to his family. This is what Abram pleaded for. And so they're agents of mercy, of God's kindness. But notice also they're sent for the judgment of Sodom. Remember a couple of years ago, Jody, when he was preaching during our Christmas concert, 
He went off on a riff against humble angels that sit in china cabinets. You remember that? Anybody remember that? (laughs) I thought he'd never shut up. It's just cringing. But of course, you listen to it afterwards, and it's absolutely true. Our notion of angels is completely unbiblical. First of all, they're androgynous. You know, they don't have any sex of male or female. They're just kind of pretty, like Jesus, the pictures in the, you know, in the Bible storybook, you know. And angels are not pretty. And angels are not androgynous. Angels are fully male. And they scare the living daylights out of everybody who sees them in Scripture. Second, angels bring God's judgment. They don't just comfort and fight for the protection of the people of God. But they also are sent here to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's never been, other than the flood, there's never been such an awful judgment. And it doesn't hurt who angels are in our minds one bit. Both God's judgment and God's mercy are God's character. And we don't turn away from his judgment and embrace his mercy. We look at them both and that is who God is. You understand? If your God does not judge and consume the wicked, you worship an idol. You may name your idol Jesus. You may say you're a Christian. But if your God doesn't judge, your God is not holy. He doesn't have justice as a central perfection of his character. And that God's an idol. Remember that this account, we're told in Peter, is given to us so that we learn to fear God. I want to tell you a little account of my mother. Mary Lee and I are preparing for the conference this week, and one of the things we want to emphasize with pastors and church officers is there's absolutely no way that you can lead a church without the leadership of women. How much would I know if it weren't for the women in my life, starting with my wife? Yesterday, we get done a long post, and we've spent hours on it. And then I read it to her when it's all done and up. And she starts saying, well, the people that you disagree with wouldn't recognize their position in what you're saying. Aren't you supposed to always say things in a way that the people that you're arguing with would say, yes, that's accurate? And I'm so irritated. You know, it's past... Ben, it's past Joseph, it's past me, and then the woman. And so, of course, I had to go in and I had to correct it. She was a little bit wrong because sometimes your opponent doesn't know what they're saying and you have to deal with what they really believe and not just what they're saying. That's part of the battle. Well, I use that as an illustration with the fact that, honestly, I have no idea the condition this church would be in, or if it would even exist if it weren't for my wife, Mary Lee. And those of you that know Mary Lee, you know that's true, right? And there's a reason why the pastors of this church have always gotten a little bit irritated with Mary Lee. Oh, come on. None of them laughed. Ha ha. Ha ha. And then you think back to the other women of this church and their wisdom. You think about, well, I won't name names, but certainly you know about Rita Cuffey. 
But all through your life, all through my life, we can just name the Priscilla's in our life who have instructed us in godliness, who have rebuked us, who have disciplined us, right? Well, I want to tell you a little story about my mother. Some of you have heard this, but when she was in her late 80s, she was here visiting. And you remember that I had, when I was four or so, I had an older brother who was one year older than I was who got leukemia. And when he got leukemia, we took him to Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, and the nurses and the doctors helped us. But my parents had it in their mind that James says, anoint him with oil and pray. So they called for the elders. The elders anointed him with oil, prayed over him. And then my parents went down to the hospital and met with the nurses and doctors and said, thank you. We appreciate your care for him. We have anointed him with oil, and he's been healed. And we won't be back, and we wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for your service. So Danny, my older brother, went into remission, and one year later, he woke up one morning hemorrhaging, and within 48 hours or so, he was dead. Now, in that one-year period of his intermission, people from church would come over and help, help my parents, and one day there were two women who were in the, in the kitchen with my mother, helping her in the kitchen. And they said to my mother, Mary Lou, God has shown us that your son is healed. Danny's healed. And my mother said, you really believe that? And they said, oh yes, God has made it very clear to us that Danny is healed. Now, go forward, what, um, 60 years or so? Maybe only 55. My mother's now telling me this story for the first time when she's here visiting a few years ago when she's in her late 80s. I don't remember why she's telling me this story. She said, they said to me, he's been healed. And she said, I said to them, are you sure? And they said, yes, we know that God has healed him. And she said, are you sure you're sure? And they said, yes, we know that God has healed him. And then she stopped talking. And I'm thinking, mud. That was our pet name for mud. Why did you just tell me this story? I didn't know what she was talking about. Why did she tell me this story? And so I said, Mud, why did you just tell me that story? What's the point? And here's what my mother said. My mother said, God is God. Danny died. And Danny wasn't the first one to die. Then Johnny died. Then Joseph died. And then her Joe died, her husband, at a fairly young age. And then her son Nathan died. And after all those deaths, my mother told me that story. And she said, God is God. Now, let me ask you, who do you think disciplined and led and taught Tim Bailey more, his father or his mother? <laughs> the truth is, the American Evangelical Church has no place in its canon 
for Genesis chapter 19. It can talk about inerrancy all at once. When I'm reading Calvin on this chapter, Calvin says we need to improve this chapter. In other words, we need to grasp it and cause it to help us. We need to improve it. He's not saying we need to change it. It was an old use of the word improve in English, okay? In other words, we need to avail ourselves of it and see in what ways it will strengthen us, it will make us holy, it will change our doctrine. The evangelical church today improves it by (laughs) snip, snip, snip. It's gone. I mean, can you even conceive of anybody today preaching on Genesis 19? You know, like, for instance, Tim Keller in Manhattan. I mean, (laughs) you know, I'm sorry, but that's a joke. I mean, we all recognize that's a joke, right? I mean, those of you who know who, who Tim Keller is, I don't hear anybody laughing, but Come on, laugh. <laughs> I mean, it's a joke. Can you imagine anybody in Wheaton today preaching on Genesis 19? Any of you know Wheaton? Well, I grew up there. It's funny. Right? Can't you just imagine the homiletics professor at Covenant Seminary giving as the text for the next sermon of the men that he's teaching to preach Genesis 19? It's Come on, come on. It's a joke. I mean, there are so many problems here that you don't, even, you don't even know where to start, right? There's the problem of the fact that you have, for starters, homosexuality, and nobody wants to preach on that today. Everybody wants to repent of their prior nastiness and superficiality. Then there's the problem of rape, and it's homosexual rape, and rape's nasty, but homosexual rape is even worse, right? Then there's the problem of Lot not wanting to leave, right? I mean, that's pretty gnarly, right? And they have to grab him by the hand. Then there's the problem of Lot not wanting to go where they tell him to go, and instead he says, how about just a little, little, little city? I'm in the city for the city. And then there's the problem with Lot's wife hanging behind. You notice she's behind him. And then there's the problem of Jesus saying what? Jesus says what? Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. All right? Jesus, sweet Jesus, says, remember Lot's wife. Then you run into the the thing about the cave. Right? And that's like, just like, I mean, nuclear doesn't begin to touch it. I mean, what on earth? Why would God put that in? And then there's Peter saying, righteous lot, righteous lot, righteous lot. People. God is God, and you are not. You are not. Your judgments are completely corrupt, except insofar as they are formed by Scripture. 
And it is God's pleasure to consume the wicked. And nobody thought he'd do it. Even righteous Lot's sons-in-law, when he went to them, did what? They laughed. They thought this was the funniest thing they'd ever heard in all the world, that God was going to judge their city. They were in the city for the city. Things had gone on for a long time the way they were going on. And so the question is, is this part of the canon of Scripture? In other words, is this inspired by the Holy Spirit? Is it? Is it? Is this inspired by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah. All right, then, is it profitable? It does say all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for encouragement, uplifting, and Reassuring. Well, actually, what it says, the first word is what? For correction. And do you think Bloomington needs sodomitic correction today? Anybody have any doubt about this? Come on. No. So, I'm going to preach. And when I get done preaching, you're going to take the manuscript and go down the sample gates and just yell the manuscript once more, just for emphasis. Right? Is that what you're going to do? Well, don't worry about it. This is a private place. And so we can have private truths. And we don't have to love Bloomington. (laughs) It's so wonderful. Now, I'm tongue-in-cheek, okay? It's so wonderful to have a, a private safe space. You know, like they have those signs for the firemen? You know, this is a safe place for, for Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a safe place for God. This is where God can speak without having to worry. I want you to listen to the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want you to realize that this has been given to your neighbor, to your co-worker, to your relatives, because soon they will face God. And if they don't know about Sodom, they will not be prepared. Now the chances are they won't be prepared even if they do here. All right? Lot's sons-in-law heard And they were consumed. But Lot had warned them. Two men. And when the two men get to the city, what do we see? They get to the city in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And so in the ancient world, the gates of the city were the places of public leadership. It's where strangers would arrive. It's where people in the city would would depart from. And so you'd process life through the comings and goings at the city gate. And it says not just that Lot is there, but it says that he, that he is seated there. All right? It says he was sitting in the, at the gate, in the gate of Sodom. 
They've done some excavations and found, for instance, in, in one of these city gates, a 15-foot-long uh, stone bench where people would sit and talk. And often in the ancient world, when there was a new law promulgated, the new law would be read, and it would stipulate in the law to be read at the city gates. Now, what do you remember about Lot before in Sodom and Gomorrah? What you remember is that when he was given a choice as to where to live, he chose to live by Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Well, because it was very fertile. It was lush. You remember that when he lived there, at the beginning, he pitched his tent near there. Is he still pitching his tent near Sodom? No, he's not, is he? He now has a house inside the city. So his movement has been in solidarity with the Sodomites, and yet we know that it's righteous lot and that he's gnashing his teeth. And isn't that a perfect description of you and me living in Bloomington? You know, we like the food, and some of us like the opera, and the free, you know, the free concerts, and, you know, it is nice to live next to wickedness and to have some of the better parts of it accrue to us. You know what I mean? And to gnash our teeth. That's the sweet spot for evangelicals, you know? You want to live in the midst of Sodom and gnash your teeth. Right? Right? Isn't that good? You know, in spring, you're in the city so you can see the flesh of the women and gnash your teeth about the flesh of the women. Right? And it's a sweet spot, right? You know, you can have a little bit of sexual immorality without just jumping into it. Well, this is, this, is, this is Lot. He lives in the city as he gnashes his teeth. He sits at the city gates. Blessed is the man that walketh not after the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scoffers. You know that righteous Lot was sitting in the seat of the scoffers, Right? Now, why? Well, it could have been that he was waiting at the end of the day for his sheep to be brought back. That's what Calvin thinks. It could have been that he was there precisely at the end of the day for travelers coming to protect them from the men of his city, which is what happened in this case. But there he is. He's sitting at the city gates, okay? And it's clear that he has some position of leadership in the city at this point because He's sitting in the city gates. He's, he's obviously, to some degree, uh, at least he's got his green card, right? Okay. Now, he's sitting there, and two angels came in the evening. And he is like his, his uncle, Abraham, in that they both have the same commitment to hospitality. Because as these two guys come, it says, when Lot saw them, verse 1, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. The same thing Abraham did. All right? And verse 2, he said, Now, behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. It's kind of humorous to see him saying, then you may rise early. It seems... It seems to be an indication of the fact that Lot wanted them to get out of the city as quickly as they could. What is their response? Well, verse 2, they said, however, no, but we will spend the night in the square. You know, we're going to spend the night in Central Park. We're going to spend the night on Boston Common. 
And what is his reaction to this? Verse 3, he urged them strongly. And so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And then he continues this hospitality. He prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now, one of the first things I got in trouble for in this church was talking about the fact that the Bible does not tell us not to use alcohol. Remember the first time I said it, and I got a lot of pushback from people in the congregation, and I want to remind you, the Bible does not say don't use alcohol. The Bible says don't be a wine lover, what we call an alcoholic. And the reason I bring that up here is that the actual word translated feast here simply refers to drinking. In other words, the essence of a feast in Hebrew is drinking. So what he's saying to them is, come have a drink, and we'll eat. Or what it really says is, they turned aside to him, and he prepared drinks for them. Now, of course, what that meant was that he he had wine. All right, so don't worry, Lawrence, you're just perfectly fine, okay? He prepared their wine, and then he baked unleavened bread. And the thing that's interesting about the unleavened bread is unleavened bread means that it can be done quickly because you don't wait for it to rise. So there's food and there's drink. It says, verse 3, and they ate. Now, after a time, the wine, and the thing that always goes with wine with men is what? Always. What? Conversation. Women think it's worthless. Women think that it's the most inefficient use of every resource when men sit around and have a drink and talk. Right? Your wife doesn't sit down and engage in conversation with you when you have a buddy over for a brewski. Right? I mean, even if you wanted her to, she wouldn't want to. She has things to do, and she'll make it very clear she's doing things. Right? <laughs> Listen, if you guys want to read something precious about this, read What's Wrong with the World by Chesterton. He has a number of sections on this, and it's absolutely hilarious. He just nails men and women. He says, every woman is a perfect efficiency machine, and what she hates is the pub and parliament, (laughs) which is just hilarious. I'm sorry. That's not in here. So the wine and the conversation and the unleavened bread come to an end, and it's time to sleep. Now, let me stop here and just say to you, I am not talking about getting drunk. Okay, I'm not talking about getting drunk. But I want you to know the word feast there refers to drinking. It's not a, an amorphous word. It, it's actually not food. It's, it's what men do when they get together. All right? And before they lay down, they ate, and before they lay down, verse 4, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. 
This last week I was looking at a collection of photographs done by a photographer hired by the World Wildlife Fund. And he went into Namibia and he, he set his camera to, to, be, uh, to open up its uh, lens whenever there was movement in the range, right? So he got a bunch of pictures, especially at night, of wildlife, that, especially that came to a watering hole. And there were some pretty ugly things he got beautiful pictures of. Warthogs. Really ugly. Just like, look, just like your husband. And then, the really ugly thing more than any was the hyenas. And that's the, the image that I have in my mind as you think about these sodomites coming to that house that night. They only come out at night, and they're just utterly repulsive. The men of the city, how many of them? All of them. The Bible is very specific here in saying not just a neighborhood, not a particular gang, not just the people in a two-block area around Lot's house. All the men of the city, all of them. And then it adds both the young and the old. All of them. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Now the word relations is the Hebrew word to know. And if two men are talking to each other, and one of them has just gotten back from his honeymoon, and the other man says to him, Did you know her? The men know what they're talking about, right? And when I say the men know what they're talking about, I'm not talking about know her. Two uses of the word. One is to be familiar, and the other is to be intimate. And this is a way in Hebrew that you make reference to the marital act without being explicit about it, right? And so what your translators have done is they've taken the Hebrew word no and they have decided which way it should be understood here, which is to say have relations. And so you know from reading this that what the Bible is saying is that they came to rape these men. But actually John Calvin says he doesn't think that's right. He's not saying he doesn't think that they came to rape the men. That's very clear from what happens later. But he's saying, and I think it's fascinating, he says, look, when men have sunk to the degradation level of actually assembling as a unit to take another man, these men are so low, they're not in the habit of using euphemisms and circumlocutions. They're not being delicate with what they say. The lower a man sinks physically, the more often awful his language gets, right? And many of you have experienced this in your own home with your husbands, your sons, your brothers. They fall into sexual sin. All of a sudden you notice that there's a certain um, coarseness, a certain unaware nastiness to their conversation, right? 
And so Calvin says, no, they actually presented themselves as simply wanting to familiarize themselves with the character. They wanted to know whether or not these two men were there to spy out the city, to come back and take them captive later. They, you know, there was an ostensible reason for them doing what they were doing. And so they actually presented it to Lot as if what they wanted was just, you know, to have a little coffee, sit and talk find out whether these men were reputable, whether they should provide them shelter in the city. Well, regardless of whether or not they meant the word no sexually or simply in terms of, <coughs> in terms of you know, getting to know their character, what we do know is that God had sent the angels down to find out about the wickedness of this city which was crying out to him. They arrived at the evening which is the perfect time to find out the character of a city. Evil men love darkness. And when they were done having some wine and some unleavened bread with Lot and they were about to go to bed, they'd finished eating. They found out the character of these men, didn't they? God came down to find out whether the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah were really as terrible as was reported. And here things become clear. Yes, it is really as terribly wicked as the cry to heaven has reported. I want to stop here for a few minutes and I want to deal with something which 30 years ago I wouldn't have had to deal with. But each generation has its lies, and homosexuals today have lied about this, saying that this is not about sodomy. This is not about men lying with men. And they use as justification for this a statement in Ezekiel by the prophet Ezekiel about what the sin of Sodom was. So in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, we read this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty, and committed abominations before me, therefore I removed them when I saw it. So today, sodomites and their supporters, when I say homosexuals, I'm not just referring to people who commit sodomy, I'm also referring to people who are advocates of sodomy, and yet themselves are heterosexual. And so our world is a mixture. So anybody that's trying to normalize homosexuality today is just another part of the grand tapestry of God's creative energy, all right? Those people will use this text in Ezekiel to argue that sodomy is a wrong word because the real sins of the sodomites were these sins that I just listed. Arrogance, abundant food and careless ease, not helping the poor and needy, being haughty, and committing abominations.
Now to respond, first, there's no denying that the Sodomites were rich. That's what it means to live in a wealthy community. That's what it means to live in a fertile plain. This was the reason Lot chose the land around Sodom and Gomorrah when Abraham gave him his choice. Sodom and Gomorrah were in a very fertile area, and those who dwelt there were very rich, much like, come on, much like us, much like North America today. Also, there's no denying that riches lead to arrogance. Look at Michael Bloomberg. Look at Donald Trump. Look at Tim Cook. Look at Steve Jobs. Look at the rich people you know. Again, look at us. Look at the United States of America. Also, there is no denying that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had an abundance of food. That was what was meant by living in a fertile plain. Such fertility produced fat sheep and goats and many good crops. And so they did live in careless ease. And again, this is like us. Then we are told that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah did not help the poor and needy. And we see this clearly in this account of their attack upon Lot's two guests. Lot is terror-stricken. Both before they come, when the two sojourners propose to spend the night in the city square, and he demands they not do so, and now when they come and cry out for him to send out his guests to them, and he refuses. Lot knows his fellow city dwellers very well, and he's not living in la-la land, talking about being in the city and for the city. Play acting as if their wickedness doesn't matter and each man to his own. Lot does not live in delusions. He knows his fellow city dwellers have no compassion on immigrants, on aliens, on foreigners, on strangers needing food and drink and bed and shelter. He knows there is no help for the poor and needy to be found in the hearts of his fellow city dwellers. See, that's it, say the homosexualists. Riches, ease, pride, and a lack of hospitality, those are the reasons God burned the city up. But what about verse 50? Thus, ending the list, thus they were haughty, and what? Committed what? Committed abominations before me. And that's God speaking. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Now, this is a clear reference to sodomy. To the sodomy, the men of the city, all the men of the city, all the men of the city, both young and old, gathered outside of Lot's house and crying out for his guests what they wanted to commit. These two angels, they didn't know they were angels. And to them, they presented as poor and needy, helpless sojourners. And the men of Sodom responded to their need and helplessness by snorting in their groins, giving rein to their lust and crying out for the poor and needy who had arrived in their city for protection, seeking to rape them. Now at this point, 
homosexualists will beat a strategic retreat. Acknowledging that, yes, there is an apparent allusion to sexual sin here in Ezekiel, but what is called an abomination is not sodomy, but sodomitic rape. In other words, it's the absence of consent that's the problem. God didn't judge Sodom because of sodomy, but because of rape. And our response is that rape was certainly a part of the sodomitic abomination for which God judged them. But even in the time of the patriarchs, prior to God giving the law to his people by Moses' hand, nature itself and nature's God had written in every man's heart the law of heterosexuality. Body parts themselves testified against sodomy, and every man gathered outside of Lot's house that night knew it. Just as every man today knows it. Don't let them fool you. Don't let them fool you. The law had not been given at this time, A little while later, God gave the law to Moses. And let me read from the law that God gave Moses, which simply codified what all men, wicked and righteous, belonging to God, not belonging to God, knew before the law was given. In Leviticus 18, we read, beginning with verse 21, You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch. Nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled, for the land has become defiled. Therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. Now here's another one from Leviticus 20, a couple chapters later, beginning with verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman... Both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who marries a woman and her mother, it is immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire so that there will be no immorality in your midst. If there is a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. Now, do you see the other crimes, the other abominations condemned by God right next to the abomination of sodomy, of men lying with men? The other abominations are giving your children to Moloch, which is to say abortion. The other abominations are what? Incest, having your father's wife. The other abominations are bestiality. Concerning this sins, no one was surprised by their condemnation in the Mosaic Law. The wickedness of these sins was written on the heart of man from the very beginning. 
and it is on the heart of man today. All men knew they should not commit incest. Doesn't the Apostle Paul indicate that all men knew this? When he shames the Corinthians, who as a congregation are proud while incest is corrupting their own congregation. When he writes them saying, 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Listen, all men then and all men now know that incest is an abomination. And we're going to have a conference about that this week. Incest is an abomination. Have you ever thought about why incest has been an abomination to the wicked and the righteous alike? Why is it an indication of the utter degradation of a culture when it commits incest? Have you ever thought about that? Why? What's wrong? And of course, being, you know, scientists or should I say, being in bondage to scientism, we're all superior that we know the reason, right? Because it's not good genetics. This is stupid. The reason we don't commit incest is what? Because incest turns everybody in a home into enemies. The closest relationships we have are utterly ruined. Utterly ruined. The sweetest times at the fireplace can never exist again. A father can never give his daughter, when she blushes into puberty, his his unguarded affection Him telling her she's beautiful because it's corrupt. A wife can't trust her husband because he's intimate with her sister. There can't be family reunions. And then you come to homosexuality. And all of a sudden, what's the locker room? All of a sudden, I, Indiana University can't just put men together in a room. I remember 20 years ago, I went to one of the deans and I said, listen, I have a student in my church who is being sexually abused by his roommate. Hello! Really? You know, it's like it had never occurred to them that if they promote homosexuality, guess what? Homosexuality is promoted. And all of a sudden, you have predators everywhere. And so the ploys of the homosexualists is to take this text from Ezekiel and they say, well, you know, it's riches, it's pride, it's arrogance, it's not having compassion for the poor, it's, it's a surfeit of food and drink, you know. That's the problem. They say, no, what about abomination? Say, oh, yeah, it's homosexual rape. They say, how about homosexuality? No, 
There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, well, look at what it does in the book of Leviticus. It, it associates homosexuality with incest and with abortion, with, which is what offering your children to Moloch is. It's, it's burning up your children for the sake of the profitability of your life, finishing your college degree. Okay? Cheek by jowl, all those sins right next to each other. And now, in America today, the church has all of a sudden decided it has to be very precious about homosexuality. You know? And so the church is saying, godliness is not heterosexuality and, and reparation therapy, conversion therapy, that's bad, bad, bad. And now I repent. I believe in homosexual orientation. I used to be wrong, and I was doing it for the sake of the gospel, but now I've realized my error. There is such a thing as homosexual orientation, and, and it's very deep, and it starts very... And, and a man discovers it. He just is like, oh, lights up one day, and all of a sudden he's just like homosexual. And it's an orientation, and we need to be sympathetic to these people. And, of course, the, these people is the tell, you know. They don't know homosexuals. They're just trying to find a place to stand where culture won't spit them out of their mouth because they're so politically incorrect. And so they're adjusting themselves. And the way to listen to evangelical Christians, including conservative celebrities today, is the minute you hear them talking about homosexuality, all you have to do is replace the word homosexuality with the word incest or the word bestiality. We, now I used to deny there was such a thing as a bestiality orientation. But I repent. Now I know that it, from a very young age, the first time they go in the barn, They find within themselves something that they don't freely cho choose, which is an attraction to sheep. Or, from a very young age, they have an attraction to their mother. And you say, Tim, would you shut up? And I say, this is what they're saying to you. This is what you're reading. This is what you're hearing from conservative Christians today. They're all precious about homosexuality. If you replace homosexuality with bestiality and incest, it will immediately become clear to you. Do you understand me? The Bible says these things are an abomination. And if you care about people tempted by bestiality, you're not going to try to talk about it being animal gay. If you have a friend that has an attraction to his mother. You're not going to talk about it being incest gay. You're not going to talk about his incest orientation. It's absurd. Nobody who talks like that loves homosexuals. No one. Homosexuals who are tempted to do the abomination are helped. How? By restoring their sense of shame. Do you see this? Have you ever repented of a sin where people minimized the wickedness of it and told you that you just had an orientation and you probably just discovered it and, and one day you woke up and, and you were a thief? And one day you woke up and you were a murderer? 
And, and it does no good to give them secular therapy because the answer is the gospel. Is that how you repented of your sin? It's absurd. Try thinking about the gospel is the answer. No secular technique or therapy to murder. And I sit there thinking, oh, how about prison? That's a secular therapy. <laughs> I mean, come on. You, do you see what we have to do? We have to realize that homosexuality in its vicious propagandistic form is now in the church and it's causing all of us to be precious with this sin in a way we'd never dream of being precious about incest and bestiality. And the Bible never makes a distinction. Cheek by jowl, these sins are dealt with the same and they have the same penalties and they're all abominations. And it, it is not until the men of Sodom Either repent, seeing the horror of their condition. The horror of it. Or they are consumed by the wrath of God. That it will stop. Do you understand this? Don't ever let people say that they have charity and love and tenderness for homosexuals when they minimize the wickedness of the sin. They have no understanding of the sin. They have no love for homosexuals. They're just trying to find a safe place to stand where the world will accept their newly modulated witness. And they'll do it just precious enough that all Christians will be caught off guard by it because they'll talk about the gospel. And the gospel's the answer. And I now believe in a homosexual world. The gospel's the answer, you see. And, and, and you say, oh yeah, gospel. You know, gospel. He talked about the gospel. And then they'll say, and homosexuality is against God's law. And you'll go, well, see the gospel, homosexuality. And now I understand there's an orientation and that people don't choose it. And, 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 but, but homosexual practice is wrong. But the orientation isn't wrong. And, and you know, you've got to be, you know. And then you just replace it with incest. The gospel's the answer. And you should not have sex with your relatives. And you have to understand that they have a certain orientation to incest in them that go and all of a sudden you see it don't you don't you don't tell me you don't see it you see it you don't want to see it but it's clear it's clear okay it's very clear michael pence is our governor he sees it when he says i don't believe in discrimination he's equivocating if he's a christian you imagine saying, I don't believe in discrimination against incestuous men who prey on their daughters. <laughs> I don't believe in, in, in discrimination against men that, that, that are predators against the animals in their barns. Oh, come on. Listen. This is the battle that God has chosen you to live your life in the midst of. And you may not want to have discernment. And you may fight as hard as you want to against having discernment. 
And you might want to walk down the broad path that all the evangelical leaders want you to walk down. You may want to go around copying a posture as the most sensitive person to homosexuals, gay men and lesbians, you know. You say, you know, you know love the sinner and hate the sin, you know. And, and, and they have an orientation, all this stuff, right? But God puts you here today. And there is absolutely no way, none, for you to take this account from Genesis chapter 19, and this is the most frequent judgment of God mentioned in all of Scripture. Sodom is referred to countless times in Scripture. Scripture never stops improving on Sodom. It never stops using it to help us. And how is it helpful? Well, the way that it's helpful is that God knows your heart and God knows my heart. And God knows the only way to keep us from giving ourselves to sodomy is for us to smell the smoke from Sodom and Gomorrah and to picture Abram looking at it. And we tremble and we run. We run. It's a gift. It's a gift to me. It's a precious gift to me. And it's a precious gift to you. It's a precious gift to every unbeliever who's giving themselves to the lesbian or gay life. It's a precious gift to Governor Pence. It's a precious gift to the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court who laugh and laugh and laugh when Watt comes to tell them to run. You notice that I'm upset. And you may think I'm upset about homosexuality. I am not upset about that at all. It's as old as the hills and three times as dusty. After living with a homosexual prostitute in San Diego in 1974, I got put in there by this roommate finding service. Took me a couple weeks to get out. <laughs> and then we moved to Madison, and, and there we worked with homosexuals in Madison. And then we moved to Boulder, <laughs> and then Boston, and, and then we had a reprieve in the farmland of Wisconsin, and then Bloomington. Listen, homosexuals are the objects of my pity, of my pity. And you might say, well, pity isn't a very nice thing. And I say, oh, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. You don't get angry at what you pity. You help. You show mercy. You know what angers me? What angers me is famous Christians who don't give a rip about gay men and lesbian women and are just busy beavers trying to protect their reputation. And so they come up with a sweet spot to stand that, cor that corrupts the church. Corrupts the church.
and abandons homosexuals to their lusts. That angers me. You know what else angers me? It angers me when a father rapes his daughter. Now, I want to end with this. You look at the horror, and we'll move on probably next Sunday. You look at the horror of what Lot does with his daughters, offering them to these men. And it's beyond imagination. But I want to give a word of explanation of that horror to you, and that is that Lot had himself a terrible situation. Do you notice that when he goes out to talk to these men who are out for blood and lust, do you remember what he says? He, you remember he goes out the front door, and then what does he do? He shuts that door. Don't you judge Lot. Lot was ready to die to protect his guests. Do you understand this? He shut the door because he knew what he was stepping into. And he does everything he can to try to protect his guests. And you say, well, that's wicked. Doesn't he love his daughters? And you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, no, 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 no. Nobody until you ever loved their daughters. I don't love my daughters. I wouldn't die for my daughters. I think my daughters are subhuman. I have no affection for them. Now, would you please laugh? You know that's not true. I would much rather die for any of my daughters than either of my sons. <laughs> I mean, you know, right? I mean, I mean, it's true. Would we stop with this superior judgment about those who are dead? It's so easy. It's so easy for us to look at dead people and and think of ourselves as superior to them. Do you know that one of the reasons you could never imagine doing what Lot did, you know why it is? It's because you have absolutely no concern for the sojourner in your midst. (laughs) Even the concept of an obligation before God to protect the sojourner in our midst is entirely foreign to us. It's entirely foreign. We have laws against that sort of thing. It's called Immigration and Naturalization Service. We don't have to show compassion to anybody because we have laws against them coming in, right? And then if they get in, we have social service agencies and taxes. You know, we've got like, you know, the bell ringer at Christmas, you know, and the salvation. And we got Middleway House, and we got the community kitchen, and we got like, well, 
you know, the deacons. Thank goodness the deacons. You know, the deacons may have to meet with them. What are they doing in there? I don't know who she is. You know, that's about the extent of our knowledge of the deacons' work, right? When did you ever have somebody in your house that you felt an obligation before God to protect them and to feed them? When? Name it to me. And so we judge Lot. He felt the obligation to protect the sojourner in his midst before God. And he did his dead level best to protect these men. And then it came right down to it, and he thought, well, maybe if I prostitute my daughters, they'll back off from the gets. And when you begin to have an obligation to protect the poor in your community, when you begin to know them by name, when you begin to have them in your home and pick them up in your car when they're hitchhiking, do you understand me? When you begin to stop having such a superior attitude towards people who have, are Johnny-come-latelys to America instead of Johnny-come-earlys, then you tell me what was wrong with what Lot did. And it was wicked. And he gets his comeuppance in the cave. And that's the end of Lot in Scripture. And it's horrible. But don't be cheap about this thing. Okay? Don't be cheap about it. Now, one, one final thing. Why does Scripture say that Lot is righteous, and why does it repeat it twice in one passage? Why? I mean, can you think of anything about Lot that's righteous? Even when you think that's wonderful that he protects his guests, then he throws his daughters to the dogs. What's righteous about Lot? Well, if you were to spend an afternoon studying it, and you were to write down every possible righteous thing about Lot, you might come up with how much? You know, maybe like one column inch, half a column. Maybe 50 words, 40, 30, 20. Right? And the Bible says righteous Lot. Now, why is this encouraging? Well, it's wonderfully encouraging because that means that you, once in your life, somewhere, somehow, did something that was righteous. In other words, if Lot is righteous by God's power, so are you. In other words, about the time that you stop judging Lot and begin to recognize yourself in Lot, that's the time that you're ready to hear Scripture say, righteous Lot, who is righteous, who is righteous. And by God's power, you are made righteous. You. I mean, that's the real story about Lot. Lot's just like you. And God is pleased by righteous Lot. So you take your little tiny faith, smaller than a mustard seed. You take your little efforts to love the poor. You take your little efforts at hospitality. Your little, little recognition 
of the fear of God. And you remember Lot. And you believe that God, by his Holy Spirit, is making you holy. Okay? And me. Yeah, we're homosexuals. We're in the incestuous. We, we, right here, many of us. We are the thieves. We are the rapists. We're gay in action, and we're gay. We're lustful. We're proud. We have no compassion. We're arrogant and rich. And Jesus came to save sinners. And when we have faith in Jesus, it is his business through his spirit to make our works pleasing to him. And day by day, we do become righteous. And one day, by God's power, those of us who are incestuous will have our names not only written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but there will be maybe five words <laughs> about our righteous deeds, right? Not as many as what, but some. And that should blow your mind, okay? It should blow your mind that anything you do is pleasing to God. Because you know your motivations, you know your fears, you know your faithlessness. Right? 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 Hey? Hey? Come on, white people. Hey? Hey? You're supposed to say, hey. Oh, good. Okay, now, white people. Hey? Amen? That was pathetic. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for righteous lot. Father, would you please stop us from judging our mothers and fathers in the faith? Would you please end our endless feelings of superiority? Would you please take away from us our timidity and fear as we live in Sodom? And would you give us faith that men know the truth and that therefore men can repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. Give us faith and love for those who are around us, Lord, especially those who are being led astray sexually. We love you. We thank you for showing mercy to us in our many, many sins, Father. Continue to be merciful to us. And help us to be a sweet smell of salvation to those in this community that you are saving, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.